This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. This episode of Omo is sponsored in part by House of Note Violin Shop in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. House of Note is a full-service violin shop serving the string community since 1959 with something for everyone. From fine rental instruments to restoration services and a fine selection of American-made violins in their showroom, this luthier-owned shop is here to service all levels of musicians. House of Note wishes everyone out there in the orchestra community the very best this year. Those of you who survived this year, may you thrive in the year to come. Visit houseofnote.com for more information or email info at houseofnote.com. Welcome to OMO, where we explore the romance and reality of violin making. We're here to celebrate violin makers, restorers, even if you think I'm just a guitar tech. You, you, you're a part of our community. Thank you for joining us today, where we have the most amazing guest. I'm your host, Rosie Deloach, and joining me today is my co-host, Jerry Lynn. Hey, Rosie. How's it going? It's going well, considering this year. Very well. Hey, we're all making do the best we can. How about yourself? I'm yeah. hanging in there, trying to get some work done and keep my, my head down at the bench and just keep moving forward. Okay, good. We've got a, uh, again, a, the most amazing guest. Uh, you have a favorite memory, Jerry, of our guest. Well, I should say that our guest is none other than uh, Iris Carr, mm-hmm. and you may know her from various social media outlets, including her fabulous new online course she's just put out. Uh, I've been fortunate to know Iris now for several years, and in the spirit of Omo, my favorite memory uh, it involves our, our our dear co-host Christopher Jacoby. Okay. We, we are all having, I believe, dinner at Tank Hall at Oberlin. And Chris is sitting a few seats away from Iris, and he starts telling the story of, how can I put this delicately, um, accidentally exposing himself while ziplining. <laughs> and I, I, I am dying a thousand deaths inside saying, oh, dear God, please let this go well because I want her to come back. I want her to like us. And, you know, the story is finishing and she starts howling with laughter. And I feel so much relief that she's going to come back. She likes us. <laughs> oh, God, I've completely forgotten about that. that was so so that's, our, my, that's my favorite Iris Carr story. How about ah, you, Rosie? How funny. Uh, my favorite memory uh, it was definitely that same year. And uh, I believe that was my first year, and I was a little freaked out because everybody was new to me. And uh, Iris showed us her slideshow where she is moving f holes on an yeah. old, uh, um, an old cello, and uh, <laughs> making it. Yeah, I forget. Oh, it's an old cello. I, I, I'm uh, probably, I probably shouldn't say what it was anyway. Okay, yeah, it was, it was a sem- an 18th century uh, Italian, I guess we can say. Okay. That. Okay. And it just, you could not see where the old F holes were when it was done. And I look around the room and everybody's jaw is open. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I do remember also later, uh, 
we're all in a room and she is across the room and uh, looking at handling somebody's violin and painting on just a tiny bit with her brush and then like brushing it on a paper towel and painting a tiny bit more. And behind her is a line of about 12 people all (laughs) holding their violin, all waiting for her to handle it. So without further ado, let's welcome Iris Carr. Hi. Oh, hi. Thank you so much. I'm very honored to to be on OMO, which, you know, I've been listening to regularly and it's been fantastic. I think you're doing such a great job. Uh, really enjoy listening to it. It's fantastic to have you here. So yeah. it's, a, it's an honor for us as well. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, I feel very, I feel very honored. You do restoration services provided out of your home. You are known internationally as an amazing teacher. Uh, like I said, you do the kind of touch-up work that makes people's jaw drop open. Uh, <laughs> You're making me blush. You're making oh, me blush. Thank you good. so much. Thank you. Well, we can't tell over over audio, so it's all good. <laughs> just, just own it and be proud. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's just, I mean, especially the sort of retouching side of it. I don't really know when it started to become such a passion of mine because it obviously was just something I was taught alongside with the with all the woodwork, but it just, um, I think it sort of started when, when the teaching started really that I realized this is what people mainly struggle with. Mm-hmm. And there's not so much uh, provision out there for learning how to do retouching really. Um, I guess because, you know, in the violin making schools, you learn, you know, to varnish a violin straight pretty much and do all the woodwork. But the retouching side of it, I think, is only a very small part of the teaching at the violin making schools. And it's just something that people, yeah, don't seem to have the opportunity so much to learn about. Well, in the States, there's almost no uh, repair instruction at the violin making schools. There's some, but it's not a really in-depth thing. Uh, that's kind of one of those right, things that you're right. sort of expected to go out and get a job and where you're going to be working at, they'll train you for that sort of thing. So it gets mm. left left by the wayside a little bit. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I was quite lucky in New York. I did quite a lot of repair work in my second year. That's excellent. Um, and I was taught by Paul Gosling at the time, who was, you know, was really good, good restorer. And he did teach me sort of the basics. But then my main, you know, the main bulk of the retouching I learned mainly um, at Beers and mainly from Andrew Fairfax. So speaking of schools, people might hear your voice and they think that you're English or British. (laughs) But in fact, you were born in Germany. Uh, You became really enamored with violin making at a fairly early age. And at first you wanted to go to the Mittenwald school. Uh, um, I just have to correct you there, actually, because I really didn't even know violin making existed until after I did my A-levels. I didn't, I never even came across that profession. I did play the violin from the age of seven. Uh, For about 10 years, I had lessons, didn't particularly enjoy practicing. It wasn't my favorite thing thing to do. Um, I did enjoy playing in a local orchestra and we did some great sort of music tours. We went to Israel and to Moscow. And so I had a sort of a good experience with that side of things. But um, I really had no idea what I wanted to do after my A-levels. I sort of did a voluntary year of sort of 
um, something organized by the government is sort of care in the community kind of work, but I really didn't have a clue. Um, what I did know is that I really liked uh, wood as a medium and I, re I, I did use to make presents for friends out of wood, you know, just a bit of fretwork or some file. I, you know, never, no one ever really showed me anything to do with woodwork, but someone during that year said to me, well, you could always become a violin maker. And it never crossed my mind before. I was totally intrigued by the idea. It was like a light bulb moment. And then from that, then it was just a, like a straight trajectory um, down that road, really. So the next thing I knew was um, that there is a violin making school where you can learn it in Mittenwald. Um, so I did go there and apply. So you have to have a test, you play the violin and you have to do a drawing. So I had to do a I think it was a freehand drawing of an F-hole and I'm not particularly good at drawing and I was terrified of playing the violin and then the practical <laughs> test I had to um, sort of rasp and file a block of wood square um, so thinking back I think I don't even know what that really meant to make something square I mean I really didn't have a clue and uh, not surprisingly I didn't um, manage to get into Midnight that year mm -hmm. um, then I visited a woman violin maker actually in, in nearby in Stuttgart and um, she told me about the school in Newark so I contacted them and their first year violin making course was already full up that year too but they started a, a new uh, kind of course that year the foundation year so that instead of a three-year course you would be doing a four-year course and they still had spaces in that so um that's how literally within half a year of me having the idea of doing violin making, I did end up with uh, in Newark with a rucksack on my back and gave it a go, basically. <laughs> Fantastic. So you uh, you did you did your school in Newark, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, after you got out, uh, you started applying for jobs in London, correct? I think it was in the sort of beginning of January in my last year. So I did for my four years. I, it was good actually to have that sort of preliminary year because they, they just get used to um, using the tools and things. So I made a treble gamba in my first year. I think it was my first instrument. I think altogether I made six violins, a viola and a cello. And I did quite a bit of repair work as well in the second year. And then sort of at the beginning of the end of that last year, I started applying for jobs in London um, including sending a letter to beers and, and other companies and did go around. And I mean, people sort of complimented me on my work, but I didn't get a job. Mm -hmm. After school finished, um, Charles Beer came to judge the instruments. He used to do that at that time. So we had to make a test instrument, I think, within six weeks. And he would look at all the other instruments we made. And uh, one of the teachers basically encouraged me afterwards and said, look, he really liked your work. Just try again. You know, maybe you can do a work experience there or something. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, I've got nothing to lose, you know. For people who don't know, you explain to your mom who Charles Bear is. What did, how did you? <laughs> well, okay, so... Um... I basically said to her, he he's like the Pope of the violin world. I mean, he's like the king because she's like, well, you know, who is this guy anyway? You know, obviously she wouldn't know and who would know who wasn't in the violin trade. So that was a funny phone conversation I had with her. That was after he basically offered me a job. But so what happened was I, I did write a letter and... Um, you know, he, he basically said, you know, really liked your instrument, wish you the best of luck. But basically we have unfortunately no spare benches. And then 
this must have been a couple of weeks after that, I got another letter saying, well, we've just had a thought because Michael Bird, who was an American guy who worked there for many years, he's taking leave of absence, he called it. He said, so he's leaving, but he might come back. But basically, we can offer you a bench between September and Christmas, if you like. Wow. If I like. <laughs> oh, my word. I mean, it was just unbelievable it was better than winning the lottery for me it was just you yeah know, if anyone had said uh, I can grant you any wish that would have been my wish so that was just amazing and uh how did your friends react to that oh <laughs> well they didn't say anything to my face <laughs> but yeah no they were they have said to me afterwards how you know they just couldn't believe it because no one ever left at beers as well. You know, they really appreciate their restorers there. He's a fantastic employer. They pay them as much as they can. You know, there's, I mean, it's just nobody ever left there. So it was, you know, apart from, okay, he, you know, he did like my instruments, but I was at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. That's for mm -hmm. sure. So, yeah. So in hindsight, obviously, I'm quite pleased um, I didn't get into Mittenwald at that time. Yeah. So uh, that was uh, incredible, incredible. And obviously I was really, really nervous starting there. So they had two workshops. Um, it was quite a narrow little building in the middle of Soho, which is the most fun place right in the centre of London. So that was fantastic just to be there and work somewhere there. And then they had uh, the sh there was sort of the shop downstairs, then a showroom on the next floor, and then the two levels above were two workshops. So there was five people in my, including me, in this workshop. Um, so I had Mark Robinson working next to me. He used to teach in New York previously. I think he'd been there about five years when I started. And then, and then there was Rainer Schumann, uh, a German guy who's who worked there. God, for God knows how many years. Probably, yeah, nearly sixty years he worked at beers altogether. In the end, and then there was Andrew, and then there was Ute Wegerhoff, uh, who actually still is employed by Charles to this day. She's the only one, I guess, they have now in house as a restorer now, and um, everyone sort of specialized in certain things. It's very interesting because, like, you know. Like Uta and Mark, they were sort of all-rounders, good at pretty much everything. And then Reiner was especially good at base bars and setups and neck grafts and bridges and that side of things. But he wasn't very confident with the retouching. And then Andrew was just fantastic, again, all-rounder, <laughs> but particularly brilliant at retouching. So I kind of, to me, it was like I'm, I was in a room directly after college seeing the most amazing of instruments, such a buzz in this workshop. You know, you've got famous musicians popping in and out. Nigel Kennedy used to often come come in the workshop and have a chat with everyone and make us all laugh. Or Stephen Isolis, you know, with his Strad cello. And, and I mean, it was just incredible. And um, yeah, just so grateful that I had that opportunity. It's just amazing, isn't it, really? So I'm fortunate enough to know Andrew a little bit, and mm. judging by the way that you two react with each other, I've got to imagine that at some points in that workshop, there's a problem that comes up, and you know, at least in my mind, in in in, mm -hmm. in there's got to be this kind of group think that happens where people are spewing out ideas and um, you know, trying to solve problems. Was 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 that sort of the environment there, or did people kind of stick to themselves? 
I think in general, most people stuck to their own work, but there was always that. I do actually remember there being instruments where someone worked on the front and someone worked on the back. And, uh, you know, if it was really long term, it was big jobs, but all that you would just pass something around and ask, how would you do that? How would you approach that? I mean, I certainly asked a lot of questions at the beginning, that's for sure. Um, I think they started me off on an English instrument. Uh, I remember doing some rib work on a Joseph Hill. And then um, I remember working the sort of bigger, next bigger job was on a Kappa Italian violin and uh, quite a big job with a breast patch and lots of cracks in the front. And I remember Charles coming to the workshop once while I was just flexing one of the, flexing the front, trying to clean a crack and suddenly this big, bang and I was holding two pieces oh. of front in my hand oh I could have just sunk into the crown it was just <laughs> awful but you know oh. he was always so tactful he just you know pretended he hadn't seen or heard and just left the workshop <laughs> that's a good boss um, right there that yeah, no, that's as was, good as I it mean, gets he never embarrassed any of us he was an absolutely brilliant boss and still you know I still do work for him now so he's been it's been a really really amazing sort of working relationship with them because you know they give me a job they usually don't ask even for me to do a a, a quote up front um unless he feels he's paid too much for the instrument in the first place then he needs to know how much <laughs> the restoration otherwise he just says you know they know I, I'm very diligent in how I keep my time, my hours on each instrument I work on. You know, if someone calls me in the meantime, also I always stop the time, take that time. You know, I'm, I'm literally to the minute. Um, so they trust me with my timekeeping and they pretty much just, you know, pay me my time, which is pretty amazing. I, I do. I'm in a very I've been in a very privileged position where I've had quite a few sort of working relationships like that. Um, I mean, I also do some work for musicians now, but a lot of the times it's for dealers who sort of just, you know, for the for other dealers, I do have to give quotes for the instruments. And that's really hard. That was extremely hard right at the beginning. It is. That's one of my least favorite things to do. Yeah. But you were employed by the shop itself for about eight years before going out on your own? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I did learn a lot in, in that time and it was a fantastic um, experience. Yeah. What made you think I'm going to go, you know, jump out on my own and you and your husband both decide to start businesses at the same time? Oh, it was just, I mean, I think we were really reckless, actually. What I haven't mentioned, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but uh, I met my husband in Newark, so uh, he was the year below me, so oh, he boy. couldn't get work in the violin world, so he ended up going back to joinery, which was what he did before. So he was working in, in joinery shops in London. Um, and then he decided he wanted to start up his own business, um, sort of moving back to the area where he near to where he was from originally, which is sort of uh, it's called East Anglia. So it's northeast, about 100 miles northeast of London. And uh, so that was one reason. The other reason was I'd fallen pregnant. That's such a polite British way of saying it. I've fallen <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> It probably is. Yeah, no, it was it was planned. I mean, I did really want children. So anyway, so I um, I had one son and then it wasn't quite planned that way. So after six months, I came back to Beers working three days while he was at nursery. And literally, as I came back to Beers, I realized that I was pregnant again. Oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. So that was quite a difficult conversation I had with uh 
my bosses at the time sort of literally just returned, by the way, I need to tell you that I'm <laughs> pregnant again. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, um, we then sort of it all kind of came together. We lived in a very small property in London as well. And so it kind of felt after that time, it felt the right time to sort of move out, have a bit of a bigger garden for the boys, um, you know, be flexible with my time so I can be there for them when they need me or when they're ill or when they've got sports days or when they've, you know, so, um, I mean, that was, it was hard to leave, but it was at the same time, it just felt like it was the right time to, to leave at that time. I can hundred percent relate to that, that, that rings true for not only myself, but for a lot of other people I know in the trade. So mm. you're s- certainly not alone there. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was scary. And I think we were pretty reckless, really, in the way that we both started <laughs> to go self-employed at the same time. <laughs> Took on a huge mortgage. And, and the other thing is childcare is very expensive in England. So it was almost like just for three days a week for two yeah. boys, it was like paying another mortgage, yeah. really. So it was, you know, I mean, I can remember being really, really stressed about our finances for quite a few years. Yeah. Until they sort of started going to school and things started easing up a little bit, you know, but yeah, luckily I always had enough work. So, you know, I could put the hours in I wanted to. And luckily my second son, he just, he was such a good sleeper. He just slept so much during the day because the first six months I did have him with me before he started going to nursery. So, I mean, it was amazing. He'd sleep like five or six hours during the day, which, you know, was incredible. the complete opposite to my first done there would have been no chance I would have done any work but the second one Dylan that was just um made things a little bit easier you know that I still managed to get work done even while looking after him and then I sort of ever so ever since then I haven't really worked full-time really if I get sort of five or six hours done at the bench actual paid hours then I'm quite happy yeah over the years you have integrated teaching more into your career So tell us a little bit about how that started. Okay, so I guess it was about for eight years, I just worked on my own in a very small little box room in our house. Um, I mean, it was even difficult just to turn a cello around. So it Mm. was a really (laughs) tiny space. And uh, and it was in 2012, I think. There's some guys in Cologne I did quite a bit of work for, and they basically asked me if I'd be happy to teach the guys in their workshop in, in Cologne in Germany. So actually, first of all, they, they said, can we send you someone for a week? I said, I don't know where they're going to work, but they'll have to sit on my lap while I show them. (laughs) (laughs) But then I thought, well, actually, I mean, maybe, and they do have two or three employees, so maybe we can turn this around. And if I go to theirs for a week and try and teach them there, and that was, uh, I was extremely nervous doing that, you know, first time I've ever taught someone really. And then uh, I just loved it. It, it focuses what you do. Like the first time you teach somebody how to do something, it's terrifying, but you you kind of get a lot out of it yourself. Mm. At least I find so anyway. No, definitely. And and it kind of makes you question everything yes. you do and why you do it. Yes. And the other thing is that always, every time I, I sort of interact with anyone, I always end up learning from them as well. Absolutely. Um, there's not been a week's teaching where I haven't come back with something, oh, I'm, I must try that out, or just, you know, learning new techniques other people are doing and uh, that sort of thing. I mean, it's, yeah. So that is a big part of the positive for me, apart from that I actually really enjoy teaching others, enabling others, because I always think my method and 
my materials are very, very simple. You know, I remember the first time I was teaching in, in France. So a friend of mine then heard about me teaching in Cologne. He said, oh, you know, he was um, a member of the Aladvi, the French Violin Making Association. He said, oh, we do give courses at Ferton. Uh, would you be interested? And I mean, that did terrify me because it was quite a step up from just going to someone's workshop and, and sharing your knowledge there. It's like some people spend, first of all, quite a lot of their own money on mm -hmm. the course. They have to travel there. They spend their time. They're away from their families. I mean, it's actually pretty terrifying when you mm -hmm. think, oh my God, please God, make <laughs> sure that they feel that was money well spent because I feel otherwise I'd felt, I would have felt so bad. So it was pretty terrifying. But I remember doing that first course there for a whole week of teaching retouching. And, you know, there's guys turning up with 50 different, I don't know, aniline colors or whatever you call them. I mean, I have no idea, but it was so interesting to see, you know, there's so many different approaches to, to retouch. And, and I still think that the method I use is extremely simple and very few materials. I mean, I use two brushes for everything, mm. apart from when I use, you know, maybe on a heel of a cello or something when I use a slightly bigger brush, but um, I use four to five pigments. I use a very simple recipe for my retouch varnish, add a little bit of matte, a bit of alcohol, and I'm off, you know, that's it. Um, so I always think it's, you know, to enable people to do things the simple way, but it's effective, it works, you know. Yeah, the, the dilemma of choice, when you have too many things, mm. it really, really complicates things. Mm. Right, right. I mean, I do sometimes also use watercolors, and and uh, but I mean, really, most of the time, it's it's a very, very few materials and a very simple method that sort of repeats itself in in the process every time, almost. Now, you this last year have a bigger endeavor in teaching. Tell us a little bit about this course <laughs> that you've started. Yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind, really. It was in April last year. I have the, some American entrepreneurs to thank for the idea, really. I was listening to some uh, sort of interviews with American entrepreneurs. Uh, a woman called Amy um, uh, Porterfield. Uh, she's like the queen of online courses in America. And uh, she sort of said, you know, if, you, if you've got a skill or something, you only have to be really 10% better than the average to be able to teach it. So I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, that's refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I had the idea, and I don't know why I got my head onto doing a neck graft, because it's one of the most complex procedures. I should have probably started with something really short and small, but... That was the thing I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I, I love doing neck grafts. Um, that includes so many different procedures and, and then all the staining and the retouching. And it's it's very, very comprehensive. But for some reason, I had my mindset on that and literally told my husband that evening, I've got an idea and I think I'm going for it. The next day I was calling um, a contact of his who uh, does sort of his social media and she she has a contact to a, a young woman called um, Evie Troy, who's a local filmmaker. And literally within the week, uh, you know, the, the ball was rolling, basically. And uh, every night I was spending time just doing research on, on how I do a neck graft and why I do it the way I do it. And um, how does it compare with other people? How does it compare the, with a Weisshaar book even? Like how, mm -hmm. you know, just making sure you kind of cover yourself 
for every possible scenario as well, because obviously they can vary. And and so I did a lot of research and and, and uh, did a lot of writing because it was lockdown at that time. So we couldn't start filming until sort of the summer months. And then we just kind of one day, both Sam, who was then sort of my project manager and also ended up doing my website and everything, and Evie, they just turned up um, and we kind of just made a start of it. <laughs> And it was quite weird because... Um, well, you work by yourself and all of a sudden you've got these extra people there and a camera. I yeah. know, I know. And just having to hear your own voice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or even look at yourself. I've had to watch my videos so many times now for the editing and the subtitles that I've actually now managed to get used to it, but I just hated <laughs> it. I just hated it so much. And I just actually didn't really want to watch the videos back at the beginning, which now... Uh -huh. It ended up taking a lot longer in the editing process if I'd been a bit more vigilant from the start because I would have spotted things that we didn't spot till later, like using a wrong word for something, then you have to edit the audio for that. And um, so so actually I sort of thought the whole filming process will take, you know, a little bit longer than me actually <laughs> normally doing the next. So, of course. It's like two or three times. Oh, it was. So, I mean, normally they estimate a neck graph takes about 30 hours. Um, so I think the filming took 16 days altogether. And so I did invest a lot of my own time in, in the whole project. And that was just obviously quite a small part of it than the filming. And then there, there was kind of an added, uh, anxiety I had with the staining process because the, even though, you know, the head is supposed to go with the body, it's an English instrument that it is on. It's very different in color, so much darker and grayer. So there was a bit of an added issue there with us getting the staining right. So it wasn't the most straightforward of, of neck grafts to do either, but um, it was okay in the end. Yes. And so if I remember right, it's a it's a 15-hour course? So the course altogether um, is 12 hours. So, I mean, we had about 68 hours of footage or something crazy that we managed to get out, um, down. So, obviously, yeah, we managed to get it down to 12 hours. So what I do with every step, I explain every step first, uh, show the materials that I'm going to use, and then basically Evie filmed me then showing the process, uh, actually doing the process, you know the planing and the carving away. And she, I mean, she's great. She's very young. She'd only really been filming for about a year after uni. And she sort of specializes a lot in drone work, um, doing some, you know, filming for estate agents and like in the Lake District, like uh, from, from a great height, you know. So it was, it was something new to her as well. So it was a really steep learning curve for both of us, really, the whole project. So you decided not to use drones around <laughs> Well, we did discuss quite a few times whether she should sort of do a little bit of footage of the garden and coming up to my workshop window, but it was just or even coming into the workshop window, but she didn't want to sacrifice her drone just to experiment with that because so, <laughs> it was just too dangerous. So uh, that was quite funny. Yeah, no, we had, I mean, we did have a laugh. We just got on really well and uh, you know, especially in the sort of explanation bits at the beginning, I'd often forget something or get something wrong and then we start again. And uh, oh, it was quite, I did kind of think, oh, to get her to sort of do a, a compilation of um, all the things that actually went wrong. <laughs> that, cut out. that would be quite funny. Yeah. So when someone signs up to you for your course, they've got 
uh, or they buy your course. They've got access for life plus a a series of materials, correct? A a bunch of PDFs of measurements and and the like that they can keep. Yes, that's right. So the, those PDFs and everything that's downloadable, sort of measurements and yeah, materials, tools. There's also quite a bit to do with the staining, and uh, then there's a seven-step process of, um, and there's a PDF with that to do with what I use, uh, the chemicals I use for staining and things like that. So it comes with quite a lot of info. Uh, that's written down, that's downloadable. The actual videos are not downloadable. That's just a way of kind of um, keeping it a little bit secure, the whole thing. Mm. And and again, the Americans are the only one who seem to offer these kind of online platforms at the moment. Uh, This one's called Teachable. And the reason I chose them was because I realized at some stage that I'd have to deal with European VAT and I'm really Mm. not good on accountancy stuff and I really didn't have to want to deal with that because basically... If someone buys the course who lives in France, they have to pay the VAT that's due in France. And then if it came to me, I'd have to return it to France. So it's it's a pretty complicated system, but Teachable actually deals with all of that for me. So I don't have to deal with the whole VAT issue. And so there's a lot to think about and all that research into which online platform to use that took a long, long time as well. That took so much of my time. You were telling us that you are uh, getting subtitles put across the bottom in many different languages as well. So this is a program that's ready for people internationally. Yeah. So I think, um, well, I I sort of, it was Andrew actually who got me onto the, you know, what about the Chinese market? So I, I sort of just went for it and thought, okay, well, maybe we'll tried so I discovered this company in in Texas actually who you just send them the video and they return the video to you with the subtitles of the language you choose but then you obviously have to get someone in the trade to go through all those subtitles and correct the words because they're very specific uh, mm-hmm. words so um I'd been in contact with a student um who is native Chinese and he agreed to and was very happy to to do that for me, but it's, it does take a long time. So we had the Chinese ones from the start, Mandarin Chinese. Uh, they That automatically comes then with English subtitles that I had to sit through myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, recently I had quite a few requests for Spanish subtitles. So um, Pablo Alforo very kindly um, agreed to, to do that job for me, which he's doing at the moment, to go through all the Spanish subtitles and correct those. And it is pretty time-consuming, I have to say. My goodness. So uh, that is available at your website, which is at iriscarrestorations.com. There's a link. There's a link to Teachable. That's right. So, yeah, it's it's, it's actually in two parts. The idea was uh, to have two separate parts is that some people might feel very confident about the woodwork of a neck graph, but might not might be interested in the retouching process because the retouching that I do on there pretty much covers all the materials I use for all my retouching and pretty much the process as well. I mean, it's not quite the same as, as doing, you know, working on a crack or something, but basically it's, it's, uh, it covers a lot of, um, of the field of, of retouching in the second part. So I thought some people might just want, might be only interested in that. So, and, and the title is invisible net graft with a question mark. Well, that's just a, a kind of a little blog I wrote on my website. To, oh, sorry. Actually, no, that is right. That is on the Teachable side as well. It's just, just kind of, you know, that is what we all aim for. We never quite manage it, but that's what we all aim for if we sort of take pride in our work. And so, yeah. 
That's right. <laughs> With a big question mark behind it. <laughs> I would um, like to shift gears with you a little bit. Uh, we got kind of personal when we talked last week and you started telling me about your gifts and what inspires you to share all this with others. Tell me about this driving force. Yeah, so I mean, basically, I've got quite a strong um, Christian faith. I wasn't really, I was brought up in a Christian family, but I wasn't really particularly interested in God for many years. And then I had a bit of a time, I guess my boys were about three and five years old. And um, my husband, first of all, in 2008, he nearly died of a heart uh, sudden. He basically had an aortic dissection. Oh, my. uh, Which most people don't survive. So he was already like a very small percentage that he even made it to a hospital. But anyway, it was a very stressful time. And then in a pretty short period of time, I lost both my parents as well. So it was a very Mm. dark, very dark time for me. And... um, I kind of just, yeah, lost, I actually pretty much lost the plot a bit. I, I sort of almost couldn't function anymore. It was, I was just in such a dark place and basically crying out. If you're there, I want to know it, you know, and I had a, basically a moment where I guess you could call it instant healing, but it was a personal experience that completely freed me from one second to another uh, from this anxiety I'd been having for weeks on end, basically, and and I really thought I'm going to have to go in the loony bin. I just cannot function anymore. You know, it was basically I was desperate. I was really mm-hmm. desperate. And I just sort of, you know, I just kind of also with my parents dying, what is going on? What, you know, are they really just gone? Is there something, you know, that carries on after we're gone? It's kind of, you know, there was a lot of questions and I did, I did basically get the answers. So, Ever since then, uh, you know, in everything I do, I ask for help, basically. I, I ask, I really rely on God a lot in what I do, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. You said that everything that I have was given to me or taught to me. So why, why wouldn't I share this? Why would I keep it to myself? Yeah, that's basically how I've, I've always felt. I mean... Um, I've, I've, you know, I've always, I've never felt a reason not to share because I think there's enough work for all of us out there, and it's really it absolutely is. If you think about it, it's for the good of the instruments, really. Yeah. If you, you know, if you pass your knowledge on and about talk about minimal invasion and preservation and how you deal with, um, with things. I mean, I, I never have seen a reason to keep things to myself, and I, I really like to see people enabled, and it's great because. I mean, I've had quite a lot of people also come to my workshop and work with me for a week, uh, students from Newark once a week, uh, once a year and things like that. And I see their work now on Facebook, like their retouching <laughs> skills. And I think, wow, that's just yeah. fantastic. And maybe I played a little part in, in teaching them and bringing them yeah. forward a little bit in, in that field. And, and um, it makes me really happy to be able to to enable other people to to do the same. Because as I said before, I think it's a simple way of, doing retouching and and um yeah so i i really enjoy that side of thing you know to actually enable people to to improve their own work a rising tide raises all ships yeah (laughs) one last question and this one is in quotes the most important have you ever worked on a skylark or a palatino (laughs) (laughs) um 
I'm not sure. I probably haven't. But then again, at Oberlin, I remember retouching a Chinese instrument. No, you, you didn't see one. It's all good. You, you didn't see one. <laughs> Consider yourself lucky. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do feel, you know, I know how lucky I've been in, in not having sort of the average pressure you you have working for a shop with you know time restrictions and student instruments and everything has to be quick I mean I'm you know if I had to do a competition with anyone bridge cutting I'm sure I would lose every single time just because I don't do setups that often you know I really take ages to fit a sound post I mean I'll take a good two hours over fitting a post until I'm happy you know? and it's really different when you work for yourself and by yourself I mean I used to be able to cut a really nice pro bridge in under an hour and now i'm like at three you know yeah, no, i mean i think you know i've got a sheet of the times that we used to charge out at beers uh, for a violin bridge three hours well um oh great i feel better now about myself i'm doing well if i'm doing it in three hours i'm doing well i think for a I can't remember sound post is it one and a half or something but i i guess i'm also just really fussy and because i don't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't do setups that often. I always think, oh, I'm mm -hmm. just not, you know, I, it takes me a long time. It takes me yeah, long. yeah. So, though I don't think in general I'm a slow worker, but it's just those kind of processes that other people get so good at because they're doing so much of it so often. Yeah, yeah. So in, in closing, you've been a really delightful, wonderful guest. And yes. I want to thank you for being part of this. And uh, it's been an honor talking to you. I've been really excited and nervous. Thank you. About it, but yeah, no, it's great. And I love to follow your stuff on Instagram and all that. It's kind of, it is, it has, it, it has its good sides, hasn't it? The social media side is also double-edged. It yeah. does have it. Yeah. <laughs> It has its good sides and its downsides. And I think one of the good things is uh, at least, I mean, I share a lot more stuff on Instagram. I don't really do anything on Facebook, but it's this wonderful community of people showing stuff and everybody gets better. And I, I absolutely love that. Yeah, no, it's it's brilliant. And I, I mean, it's, yeah, I do really hope to be able to to teach again in person as well. I do miss it, even though I'm... I'm kind, I guess I'm kind of much more used to working on my own, but uh, it's for me, it's like this equilibrium with sort of three or four times a year actually getting out of my workshop and going somewhere different and traveling somewhere and, and then teaching and meeting new people or meeting the same people and uh, exchanging learning. I mean, you know, I really admire you, Jerry, for example, with doing all the, you know, the CNC stuff and, and all what's going on there. That's completely over my head, all that stuff. And I think it's fantastic because it's all about the minimal invasion side of things again, isn't it? Yeah, less is more. We spend more and more time doing less and less. mantra. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, uh, her website is iriscarrestorations.com. Uh, Instagram, iriscarrestorations, and the same on Facebook. We'd like to thank all of our listeners. Yes, thank you everyone for listening. You guys are awesome. Uh, thank you, Iris. Your delight. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great chatting to you. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs> Oma was an all luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. 
We'd love to hear from you. So reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.